On Sunday, May 23rd, 2021, I had the wonderful opportunity to have this soul-rattling conversation with six badass Black women who I will introduce you to in just a moment. But as you listen to this conversation, and it is long, take time to pause in those moments that feel embracing, in those moments that feel like, yes, she hears me, she knows my heart. Those are the times in this conversation that will certainly stick with you from the time you listen to this podcast until maybe 10 years from now. Please enjoy this episode of 824, the Spirituality and Social Justice Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Valen S. Jordan, founder of Yoga for Social Justice, and I promise you, this episode is worth sharing. And I will ask that before we get started here, that you just close your eyes and acknowledge the land that you are on. Uh, even if you are not aware of the indigenous folks who first inhabited the space you are on, just reflect on it here in Lafayette, Louisiana. Uh, it is important for me to acknowledge that the Choctaw, Opelousas, and Chittimacha people first inhabited this land prior to it being colonized. And so if you don't know, uh, just take a moment to reflect on it. I'm also going to ask that you reflect on and call into your space. Your ancestors call into the space, the spirits that guide you call into the space, the people who have taken care of you, who have helped you be in this moment of radical self-care. Uh, and just breathe here, hold that, hold the energy of those people that fill you, that fill your heart. Thank you. So we'll start this off with introductions of the six women who are joining me here today for this conversation. And I have to tell you, I am incredibly excited about this conversation. Uh, yesterday, as I was thinking about it, I was starting to get teary for some reason. Um, it feels long overdue for me to have this conversation with the six of you. And I'll also make sure that everyone out there who's listening and watching knows that the six of you don't know each other. Um, some of you know each other, but the, the way this all came together was the six of you know me. And I said, the six of you uh, are badass black women in my mind that I need to have the six of you in this conversation with me. Uh, and treat it like a brunch moment. So if you don't have uh, a brunch drink with you at the moment, maybe it's just seltzer water or club soda, whatever it might be, go get yourself that, that drink, hold it, be here with us for this sort of round table brunch Zoom conversation. And I'll start by introducing my panel uh, and I'll start um, in alphabetical order. So Darby Baham, am I saying your last name right? Bayham. Bayham. Darby oh. Bayham is a debut author with Harlequin Special Edition, a senior managing editor at New York City nonprofit. In 2020, this New Orleans native signed a three book deal with Harlequin Special Edition. Her first book will debut in 2022. Oh. Welcome, Darby. 
Yes. <laughs> That's my girl, so. <laughs> so you should all know the way I know Darby is through Miranda and I met Darby maybe five years ago um, and so this will actually be the first time the two of us get to have this conversation uh, or even have a really extensive conversation in probably five four to five years so it's been yeah, a while well. <laughs> it really has yep. thanks Valen um, next up is Danielle Brzezinski uh, Dr. Danielle Brzezinski, let me be clear there, is currently uh, working at the University of Virginia where she teaches a course focused on critical race theory and education. She also serves as the curriculum instructor EDD cohort manager. She also does consulting work uh, for the Phillips Collection in DC and sits on the board of, tell me the name of the school, Danielle. Thurgood Marshall Academy okay. in DC. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. So she also sits yeah. on the board of Thurgood Marshall Academy uh, here in Washington, DC. And Danielle and I actually know each other from our doc program, same as how uh, I know Miranda, the three of you, three of us were at uh, George Washington University together at the same time. So welcome, Danielle. Thanks, Alan. Next up is Asia Campbell. So I've known Asia since uh, 2000, uh, she and I went to high school together. Uh, so Asia is a certified strength and conditioning coach and the owner and founder of Girl, a coaching and lifestyle brand committed to empowering women. Asia currently oversees the strength and conditioning program for the Mary Lewis Academy, the high school that we went to, a private high school in Queens, New York, serving over 240 student athletes. Welcome, Asia. Thank you. Next up is Veronica Henry. So Veronica and I met here in Lafayette, Louisiana. Um, we met at a bar called Tap Room and instantly became friends four years ago. It was just a random meeting and I was there by myself. Um, and somehow our energies sort of uh, connected and collided. So Veronica is the co-founder of ProSet Marketing, a digital marketing agency founded in 2017. She is a member of Zeta Phi Beta Sorority Incorporated and the Junior League, um, and also a member of Junior League of Lafayette. In addition to scaling her agency, Veronica works to use her company as a springboard to advance other Black businesses. Welcome, Veronica. Thank you for having me. Next is Miranda Ward, Dr. Miranda Ward. She is an assistant professor in the Department of Clinical Research and Leadership at Emerging Scholars Fellow in Anti-Racism and Health Equity in the GW School of Medicine and Health Sciences. She also serves as the ambassador program lead for the GW Health Careers Opportunity Program. And most recently, the recipient of George Washington University's most competitive teaching award, the Morton A. Bender Teaching Award. And I have to say, I'm very <laughs> proud of you and excited about that. So welcome, Dr. Ward. Thank you, I appreciate that. And I appreciate you recognizing me and all of us as badass Black women, yes. Yes. Last up is Dr. Tanisha Watkins and, um, in 2005, I believe, 2005, Shay and I were sophomore year roommates uh, for the first half of our sophomore year at University of Miami. And Dr. Ward, or Dr. Watkins, I'm sorry, is an instructor of strategic communication in the NIDO Cleveland School of Communication at High Point University. Dr. Watkins is also the owner of PhDology, 
a lifestyle brand that specializes in creating graphic t-shirts for people who are familiar with hashtag PhD life. Welcome. <laughs> thanks, y'all. Awesome. Really happy to be a part of this conversation today. So Valen, thanks for having me. So I have to say that all of this is incredibly, incredibly exciting to me, um, mostly because in the last 14 months, we have sort of dealt with a whole host of things. And so I want to start this conversation off by saying we're talking about radical self-care. And so before we even dive into the meaning of radical self-care, I'd like to ask my panelists to tell me what does radical mean to you? So I'll start with Darby on this one. What does radical mean to you? So I was thinking about this really hard, Valen. Um, and you know, I think radical obviously can have negative and positive connotations. But when I think of it, I think of the stuff that shakes up what you thought you knew mm -hmm. um, and like puts you in a position where there's no turning back. You have to put action into this new thinking that you've come across. Um, mm -hmm. And so we're talking about radical self-care, but I also think about things like radical empathy and radical storytelling, just that stuff that makes you put action into, into what you're saying you believe in. Yes, I love that. Asia, what about you? When you hear radical, what does that mean to you? I really like um, your take on it, Darby. I think that that was perfect because when I think of radical, I also think of like a spectrum. Right. But I tend to focus a little bit more on the, you know, the light part of the spectrum when I think of radical self-care. To me, that means it might be unorthodox. It may be something that other people don't understand that you need to do for yourself. But it's also giving yourself permission to do that and say, like, I don't really care if you don't understand why I need to do this for myself, but I'm going to do it. And, and not turning back, as Darby said, you know, not allowing you know, the discomfort that comes along with sometimes prioritizing yourself um, turn you back from doing that. Miranda, what about you? What does radical mean to you? I know you got something for me, girl. <laughs> I mean, I do have a little something, something now. And I'm actually going, you know, um, take what's been said already because I, I like that. I mean, most certainly, yes, Darby, it does. There is some connotation there. I'm going to talk about that connotation. But for me, radical is a, a reimagining. Right. So, mm -hmm. yes, it is going against the grain. It's refuting these socially acceptable ideas, socially acceptable responses, socially acceptable behaviors, right? Norms. It's th these norms that we, you know, that are like these set of beliefs that go unquestioned. They, they, they just get repeated, passed down even as just natural and expected. So then a radical person or a radical idea or a radical response disrupts those norms. And so, mm -hmm. That's where some of that conversation comes in. It's like, uh, you know, how dare you, right? Take it this far or do something that goes against tradition or, or you know, or expectations. So it can take on a negative connotation in that way. Um, especially if we think about, you know, you know, our conversation today about radical self-care and the idea, some of the, some of the resistance that you we may hear about, oh well, you know, that is so selfish of you. If you think about our foremothers and all they've endured, right? They survived and they didn't, you know, take time off and do this. It's like, okay, you know what? We are taking those survival narratives and we're reimagining what's possible for our lives and our livelihoods, especially since there's a difference between surviving and thriving. And we try mm -hmm. to yes, yes. Yes, I love that. There's a difference between surviving and thriving. Veronica, when you hear radical, what do you think? To me, um, 
just the existence of a radical change or radical effect is affecting the foundation of something. Um, and, and you think about the radicals of the past is that they were trying to affect change in the radical, you know, in the basis of how things were, change the status quo, um, change the system. And, and whenever you relate that to personal ideology, to me, radicalism is just a constant um, action of, of changing the foundation of your beliefs, changing the foundations of your behaviors. Um, so to me, it's, it's just, it's, con it's a constant state of change almost. Mm-hmm. Y'all are stirring up gyms early here. Danielle? Um, yeah, it's, it's like the hard part going last or towards the end, because I think a lot of what um, has been said is exactly what I was thinking with the term radical. Um, you know, we just, we just, we were just talking about this at um, our earlier brunch this morning. Um, and I've been reflecting on that word for, for a bit now. And I think it's become a term that's so politicized. Um, and so it's, it's, a negative thing. Um, and the person that came to mind for me when I thought about radical was actually something Frederick Douglass had said, which was, if we wanna make change, we have to agitate. Um, and so like mm -hmm. thinking of this washing machine, it's just like this small little, like this, this small little irritation. It doesn't have to be big. It doesn't have to be um, like, you don't have to blow something up to be radical. It really is just disrupting um, that status quo, what feels safe. Um, giving yourself a little moment to unsettle that, um, questioning something in the moment. Why am I doing this? Why do I continue to like do the things that aren't caring for myself? Um, so I, I, I think that's how I would um, define or conceptualize radical. Mm -hmm. Shay? So yeah, just really... I think radical for me encompasses a lot of the sentiments that have already been shared. One of my favorite words is disrupt. And so when I think of radical, I think about disrupting those norms. And then kind of what Danielle just said, um, I think that we tend to think of like radical as like this bad thing. And um, like, you know, ultimately the outcome um, is going to be something that is negative. But also I think of radical as into like, leaning into the gap of potential newness. And that, if you, we look at it in that light, in that perspective, it actually gets us excited, right? Um, and challenges us to want to be more radical because we know that there's a, a possibility that something new and creative can be on the other side if we lean into those things that we think are radical. Yeah. I love that. And that's such a good segue into this next question about uh, what does radical self-care mean to you and what does it look like in your life? And I have to say, like, oftentimes what it looks like for me is sense memory. It looks like uh, sort of closing my eyes and reflecting on things that have been experienced, things that I have heard through and like family line stories. Uh, one story that I come back to often, I might cry as I tell it, one story that I come back to often in the last two years, my grandmother um, died two years ago of lung cancer. And while she was in the hospital, um, you know, dying, she was, she had a little tiff or attention with one of the nurses. And some of you might already know this story. 
And the nurse had come in and was a little rough with her. And she looked that nurse in the eye and told her, if you manhandle me like that again, I might be sick, but I will drag you across this bed and beat your ass. <laughs> right? Like, right? And I very much sometimes find myself tapping into knowing that story and knowing that my grandmother was someone who was feisty, someone who was just very much like, owned her voice, owned her words, knew what she stood for, even on her deathbed. And that for me feels like self-care sometimes when I can sort of tap into family story, when I can tap back into memory, when I can tap back into um, what does it mean to hold on to the ancestors who took care of me and left me with these messages and told me it was okay you know, to tell that nurse, like, don't mess with me, right? Like, I might be sick, but don't try me. Um, and so I'm wondering for all of you who are sitting here, what does radical self-care mean to you? Um, and what does it look like in your life? I'll start with you, Asia, because I'm your center of my screen at the oh. moment. Oh, am I? Um, so I think I was thinking about this question a lot. Um, so radical self-care to me means again, taking some of those steps that feel kind of uncomfortable, but you know, in the end are going to suit you. So for me personally, this year, it's been like saying no to projects or saying no to people that either I know I'm not, I don't have the capacity to help as a coach, you know, so that may be like turning down a client or referring a client out, which, you know, of course means less, you know, financially isn't what I want to do as a coach, but ethically, it's what I need to do. Um, and it's, it, it's, it's self care because it makes me a better coach, but it also provides what I want to provide to people, which is an opportunity to seek the care that they need. Um, so that's one big thing that's looked like radical self care, um, recently for me, um, and just setting boundaries, which I'm sure we'll probably get into, talking more about, but setting boundaries and saying no seems very radical in a way that I'm not used to taking care of myself. Mm -hmm. Shay? I was going to chime in next. Um, I think for me, a, a, a big part of my process, I'm a very mental person. I'm in my head and in my thoughts a lot. And so when I think about radical self-care, for me, it kind of started in my mind. And so I had to kind of dismantle some of those familial norms and notions that were passed down to me about self-care. Um, my grandmother had 10 kids and for the most part, she was a single mother. Uh, my granddad remarried and had um, a, another family and kind of just left my grandma with these 10 kids, right? And so, you know, these stories that were passed down to the women in my family were like, oh, you have to work. You know, you have to be resilient. And, um, you know, there are no days off. There's always something that needs to be done. And now coming into this day and age, um, one of the biggest things for me was, okay, we, I need to dissect that. Is that actually really healthy? And it was hard to do because we have so much respect for our mothers, right? And our grandmothers that it's hard to think that, hey, maybe some of the things that they taught us about caring for our family and caring for ourselves weren't necessarily the healthiest. And so that's where my process started. <clears throat> Veronica? All right. Um, 
for myself, um, my roles and the many hats that I wear, like so multifaceted from wife to mom, to daughter, to friend, to business owner. Um, to me, radical self-care has been making the assertion that I have a responsibility to myself first before I can be responsible for someone else. And that's something that I've always struggled with. And I have, I'm not going to say I'm master because I'm far from, but not taking it a step further than just saying no to things and reorganizing my mind to say my rest is important and it's okay that I rest. And to say that, you know, the things, reading a book is important and that I, it's okay for me to not be productive every minute of my day. It is okay for me to just stop and just be and kind of go against this image of what this entrepreneurial hustler go-getter woman is and just be content sometimes in just existing. Yeah, and that's really, um, it's connected to what Shay just shared, but it's so hard, right? It's so hard to get to this point of wanting to just rest when you have, and we might come back to this later, when you have the narrative of all of the other things that sort of say to you, you have to keep going, right? Like you don't have time to pause here. You don't have time to sit down. Um, and resting shouldn't feel so radical, but it does, right? And I think part of what you said earlier, Shay, about leaning into the newness, right? And recognizing that radical means leaning into the newness. I have to get still. I have to surrender. I have to be able to just stop so that I can lean into the newness. I miss all the newness if I keep going. So um, I, I find it really compelling and heartwarming and embracing to hear the three of you talk about rest and talk about how you have to respond to yourself first. Uh, Miranda? Yeah, so I'm glad to go next because I literally, everything that's been said up until this point is literally how I feel. I'm, it's almost feeling like, have y'all seen um, In Our Mother's Garden yet? I mean, mm -hmm. oh, Valen, I think maybe even Darby put me onto it. Um, and this is feeling very In Our Mother's Garden-esque, right? We're sitting here and thinking about the, again, this intergenerational stories of what it means to be a Black woman, right? And so when I think of radical self-care for myself, I am actually engaged in a lot of resistance, right? It's that it's the reimagining, like that newness that you know that Shay talked about. So I'm actually, and again, this is very much easier said than done, but this is a commitment that I've made, right? I am, you know, constantly resisting the idea that I need to be everything to everyone, which has been said, right? Around not just saying no to opportunities, but saying no to people, <laughs> right? Um, I am resisting the urge to explain myself, to shrink myself. And, you know, if, if I think about like almost, it's like an ethic of care, right? Where I'm trying to embody that. I'm trying to I'm trying to pass that down. So I'm on the board of an all black uh, school for girls here in DC. And one of the things that we've been talking about is creating a culture where our black girls do not need to code switch, right? And they're not expected to code switch. Do y'all even like know how freeing that is as an elementary school, middle school black girl where that is not the expectation? Mm -hmm. and, like if you think about it, I'm grown and I only recently in the last three years stopped code switching, okay, in my classroom, you know, and to be honest, a lot of it had to do with me just forgetting because I get passionate, you know, because I teach 
you know, health equity, racial equity. So I got all the examples and I'm like in my element. And, you know, and so I, I felt like I was like, oh, dang, I, I quote unquote slipped, right? Like what? Being me is slipping, right? <laughs> but that's the thing because I teach at a PWI, a predominantly white institution. I was thinking that I had to be, you know, so-called professional in this certain way and show up in a way that was limiting and reducing and shrinking myself, basically. But I stopped doing that because A, obviously it's anti-Black, but then it's, it's colonialism at its finest, right? And speaking of colonialism, right, that's another thing I'm resisting actively. I am resisting that white capitalist patriarchy that's disguised, that's grind culture that y'all been talking about, the whole entrepreneurship thing that y'all was talking about, like, oh, you know, during the pandemic, you should have started the business. We've all got the same 24 hours. Why aren't you doing X, Y, Z? Going back to reimagining what productivity means, it's not always you know, product, like it is productive to rest, actually, very much so, right? Like, proclaim Nat Bishop, Trisha Hersey, me and Darby were just talking about how we absolutely love everything about the Nat ministry. If y'all not already, um, already following it on IG, like, I appreciate it, because I'm definitely sitting my black ass down somewhere, right? <laughs> and resting, just like, you know, uh, Trisha, you know, advises. Yes, yes, because what you're not going to do is I'm not going to be burning from both ends, right? And then also, you know, I'll say, I am going to take it here. Another thing that I actually am resisting is very, again, like I said, easier said than done, but I am doing it, is I'm, re I'm actually resisting um, the narrative that marriage and having babies is a sign of success, right? It should be used as a status symbol. And I'm saying that not because I'm anti-marriage or anti, you know, having kids, because I'm not. I actually do want to get married if that's, you know, God's will for my life. But I'm also not out here forcing it on every relationship or beating myself up about, you know, why hasn't it happened for me yet and things like that. So, you know, and again, a lot of that is so, it's a lot of unlearning that happen, has to happen because I feel like when I go back to Cali, I'm a Cali girl, but I live in DC. But every time I go home, like that first thing that I'm asked is, where's my man? Where's my kids? You're like, wait, like I have 8,000 things going on. There's so much more to me. And that's, I'm literally reduced down to that. Right. So this is like it's 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 I'm swimming in these expectations. Right. So basically, I feel like for me, it really does come down to soul care. Right. So like mm. in a minute, we're going to talk about, you know, some things that we do to kind of take care of our bodies and our health. And, and I see that as self-care with the things that I've just outlined, the things that I'm actively resisting is, is soul care for me because I'm taking care of my spirit. I'm taking care of my energy, you know, and, and my and my spirit, and my energy is going to interact and it's going to shape how I, how my body feels, right? How my emotional, my mental, my social health actually is, you know, is maintained because it's hand in hand. So we're going to pick back up on that because it's connected to the next thing we're going to talk about in terms of how self-care is connected to activism, advocacy, social justice work, or being social justice, as I like to say. And so we'll even flip it and just call it soul care and what does soul care look like for activism, advocacy, and so on. So Darby, Danielle, um, where do you want to add in here? Um, so there are two, two words that come to me come to me when I think of radical self-care. Um, and um, much like Veronica, I feel like I'm not an expert in self-care. I'm like working through this. Like I beat myself up almost every single day for something. Um, but I think because I do that, like I have to give myself forgiveness and grace, right? Um, and I think one of the things that um, has been in the past, you know, year and a half in particular, it's how do I move through the world with forgiveness and grace for others, but also for myself? Because I'm not gonna get this right every day. I've got two little girls running around. 
and I am not my best self sometimes. And I can go to sleep at night beating myself up and I have to wake up in the morning and take care of them. And how do I take care of them if I'm not taking care of myself? Um, and so forgiveness, like I didn't get it right today or I didn't do my best today and I'm gonna, I'm gonna do better. And I'm kind of rooting myself in, in um, what's most important um, it's something, and sometimes it's like the smallest thing, right? It's a, it's, it can be a tiny, like I was saying earlier, it can be like the tiniest little thing. Um, so one, like, for example, one of the things I started doing was this has felt like a bad day, but it couldn't have all been bad. Right. So what's the one thing today that I can say that, um, not even that I did for myself, but that made me happy today, or that gave me joy today. And like centering on that, just like, makes me realize, oh, you know what? This day wasn't so bad. <laughs> um, it might've been, I put my feet up and watched a really bad TV show. And, you know, or it could have been, I spent an extra five minutes in the shower. Um, I washed my hair today, like props to me, you know? Um, so it's like, what is it that I can like root and hold on to that um, helps me realize that it's not all so bad um, when it can feel very much like it is. And I love that, Danielle. Well, one, everything that you all have said is, is part of my self-care. I think the biggest thing has been resisting the notion that I am not worth if I am not perfect, right? Mm. Um, and it's it's twofold. It's like the idea of perfectionism, but also the idea of wanting to be everything and everyone for everyone. Um, and that comes from being a Christian woman, that comes from being a Black woman, that comes from being a Southern woman, an older sister, all of those things that we embody, you know, as part of our identity. Um, and, you know, I've been having a lot of conversations on this journey with my therapist, where she will challenge me and she'll say, you know, what I'm hearing you say right now is as a Black woman, I don't deserve rest. Or as a Black woman, I need to be perfect in order to show up for people. And then she says that and I'm like, oh, that sounds awful. <laughs> That's not what I'm trying to say. And she's like, I know it's not what you're trying to say, but it is what you are saying. And so like allowing her to challenge me is also a form of self-care to say, you know what? Okay, I'm taking that notion, sort of what Miranda, what you were saying, like in our mother's gardens, I'm taking that notion from all of these, you know, societal norms that have been put on me to be perfect in this moment. I am taking this notion that like, if I don't show up, for the people that I love in the way that I think I need to show up every single time that like, I'm not worthy in their eyes and just releasing that. That's the biggest part of self-care for me. Um, and especially over the past year and a half, it's been finding things that are not spa related that are self-care for me, right? Because mm -hmm. I think the easiest thing the fun stuff of self-care is to be like, I'm going to get my manicure and my pedicure this week. I'm going to get a massage. I'm working with my chiropractor. But the hard self-care stuff is like, am I going to journal this week? Am I going to say no this week to something that I probably would have wanted to say yes to, but I know doesn't serve me? You know, Am I going to take some time to move my body when I've been sitting around, especially during the pandemic, been sitting around and the more you sit around, the more you want to sit around, right? Um, and so those are the things that I think of when I think of self-care for myself. Yeah, thank you for that. Thank you all of you for sharing that. Um, so 
So we're gonna dive into this next part and thinking about how self-care is related to advocacy, activism, and social justice. And as I was listening to you, Darby, I was one reflecting back on a conversation that I had earlier this week on a different panel uh, called The Therapists Are In. And um, they were talking about how there needs to be a normalizing of saying I have a therapist, right? Um, and saying that I am working with someone to help me cope with these, these uh, sort of tensions and struggles around feeling unworthy or feeling not cared for or not feeling like I deserve love um, or dealing with anxiety, whatever the case may be. And I think um, there's something to being able to say that in a community of black women to say that we are working with outside counsel to help us do these things, right? Uh, because for a lot of, in a lot of ways, some of the narrative that has existed, at least for me and my family has existed is that you can pray and then you'll get better, right? Like, like pray, we don't go to therapy. There's nothing wrong with you. You're fine. Pray about it. It'll get better. And so there's something relieving to be able to say with people, I am praying, I'm doing the thing and I'm also seeking outside counsel. Um, and so support me in that. The other thing that I'm thinking about now as I'm hearing all of you say this, and I was talking about how sense memory and the idea of just sort of uh, being embraced by memory, being embraced by stories that I've had the opportunity to encounter with my grandmothers, my mothers, great grandmothers, so on and so forth. I'm also reflecting on the ways in which I use writing as a tool of refuge, right? Um, not just journaling. So something that I learned when I was in my doc program with both Miranda and Danielle, well, how, how important it was to sort of lean in and rely on the writings of Bell Hooks, Audre Lorde, um, Toni Morrison, right? Like to lean into the, the wisdom of these women as a way of trying to write about my pain and write myself uh, into the pages for other people to understand. But there's also something that feels really um, voyeuristic about it sometimes in the sense that I am doing what I need to do to write myself out of my pain, my anger, my suffering by putting it here. But then when I submit it to a journal or I submit it for, for it to be published for a book chapter, right? And it gets published, it's there. And then people are reading it in ways it feels like it can be very voyeuristic where someone is sort of diving into my pain in a way where they're critiquing it. They're using it for a methodological resource. They're using it in a way that feels um, sort of inauthentic. And I say this to say recently I was, um, I work at San Jose State and recently uh, there was a professor in comm studies who used the chapter that I just published called, it's like boiling a frog, the de-intellectualization of a black woman academician. And so she used it in her class and students really loved it, but it became something that she was using for weeks at a time, sort of unpacking the ways in which I was writing about my pain and she was telling me about it. And while I felt honored that it got used in a course, at the same time, I felt like I didn't write it for that purpose, right? Like I didn't write it for you to sort of, for you to use it as a, as a teaching tool. So, um, I, and in that, right, then I think about how that writing is connected to activism, it's connected to advocacy, it's connected to me wanting to unify the voices of Black women to say, here's a thing that happens in the academy and stop doing it. Um, and so I, I turn that over to, to the six of you now in terms of how do you see your processes of radical self-care informing activism, informing your activism, informing your advocacy work that you do, uh, the social justice work that you do, so on and so forth. Whoever wants to start. 
Um, I'll jump in. So thank you for sharing that. Absolutely. And I know there's also been some critiques of just like, um, like you're talking about the academy, like the academic academy, but there's also the academy of like film and, and mm -hmm. about the ways that, um, um, I think even like Lena Way, this is, isn't she the, the, um, the director for us or what is it, let's call them. Die and them, yeah. Yeah, right. Mm -hmm. And I feel like one of the major critiques of that particular show, I thought I watched, how many episodes did I watch that? I think I watched maybe uh, the first two episodes. Mm -hmm. Because I actually, horror, I, I like, horror is, is, is my genre. I actually like, I actually like horror. But uh, I know everybody can't get into it. But I will say a lot of people, like the, one of the main critiques of it was the, the idea that you just raised, Alan, about the kind of trauma porn. Um, and people were like feeling mm, uneasy about, hmm, I know here are our stories and you can you can tell our story in so many ways. Why you decided to do it that way? And then some people were, you know, countering that like, okay, this is a genre that many black filmmakers actually have not entered. So like, we should have license to be able to tell it how we want. Oh no, this, you can see a, a, a range of, you know, responses, but I appreciate the, um, the sentiment that you just shared because I definitely feel very like like-minded in that way. But what I'll, I'll say that um, when it comes to radical self-care, it's definitely a necessity if you're engaged in advocacy or social justice-based work, okay? And I'm actually engaged in anti-racism work, which includes both health and racial um, e equity curriculum development at GW, and also engaged in that type of work with the, um, the nonprofit that I have with DCU. Right. And so this type of work is the type of work that I cannot compartmentalize and just leave at work. Right. It's like a nine to five. And then, all right, now I'm off to, you know, my life. OK, actually, there's blurred lines there. It's like bleeding in there because I am always a black woman everywhere I go. So I'm always thinking about impacted by concerned with the health and the wealth of my people. Right. So, you know, and I, I feel like I saw like a meme. I wish I can attribute, you know, the the credit to, I don't remember who it was, but it was just like a minute ago where um, they were like, uh, no, being black is not exhausting. White supremacy is, right? <laughs> and I was like, yes, okay, I couldn't have said it better, right? Because, you know, given how pervasive white supremacy is, we actually have to take the time to be very deliberate and choose ourselves, choose mm -hmm. our wellness, as throughout the continued fight, right, for, for equity and justice, right? So this is why I've been, you know, very deliberate and not watching Black death on social media, right? I'm not adding that to my mental roller desk, I, you know, because once I see it, I can't unsee that. And I'm not feeding that to my psyche, my spirit. Like, I get enough and have enough historical and um, generational trauma that I'm managing and fighting. So that's just, like, not something that I need. But I will say, you know, this lifelong fight, um, and it is very much that, right? We're fighting, we're fighting for something we've never seen, right? We've never had an anti-racist society. So it's, this is uncharted terrain. I mean, you know, again, four, four mothers and, and your ancestors have, you know, laid the foundation and been doing the work and picking up the torch and we doing it too. But in my lifetime, I likely won't see it. And, you know, and I, and I recognize that, which means that this work is taxing. And like everyone has said, right, no matter what work you do, if it's not this work, whatever it is that you're doing, um, it requires rest. Rest is a right, right? It's not a privilege. It's not a luxury. We have the right to rest. And so, you know, that's literally why, you know, and I know resting looks very different depending on, you know, how you engaged in it, but resting is not the same as sleep, right? It's like, okay, it's not just, oh, go to sleep. No, I'm resting, which means that I'm literally unplugging. Like I'm literally not giving my mental energy 
to this, right? I'm going to escape for a moment, right? So I'm going to do something that is either mindful, right? Meditate, again, like you said, write about it, like, um, you know, pray, whatever you, that you're mindful, or you can do something mindless, like, okay, I'm actually going, you know, watch this Netflix series real quick. I'm about to lay up on somebody's beach or whatever, like whatever it is, but ultimately you're giving yourself the right to, and the permission to take a break <laughs> so that you can reset and recharge. And I think that's incredibly necessary. Yeah, Miranda, you know, I feel like I sit between you and Valen a lot in this conversation. Um, I am a writer. So a lot of what I do in terms of, you know, processing my expressions and my emotions comes through that writing. But then also in my nine to five that we know isn't a nine to five, um, I work for an organization that does criminal justice research. So I am taking in like all of the, especially last year where we saw so many black bodies being killed dealing with police officers, right? Um, I think, you know, it all goes back to me in, in a couple of different ways. One is going back to what you said about rest and the nap ministry. I feel like she reads me for filth every day. Um, mm -hmm. She talks about this idea that if you can't even imagine rest for yourself, how can you begin to imagine like what a world looks like where it's actually criminally just, where, <laughs> you know, if you can't imagine taking time for yourself and pouring into yourself, then you can't imagine any of this reformative stuff. You can't imagine any of this advocacy work in a real changeable way. And I think of that in terms of like, um, you don't wanna go to a hairdresser whose hair is always hit, right? In the same way that your advocates, your social activists should also be people who we're allowing to advocate for themselves because I don't want my hairdresser's hair to be hit. I don't want my, you know, trainer to be bigger than I am. <laughs> I don't want my activist to look like she or he or they are completely pouring themselves out and not advocating for themselves, right? Mm -hmm. um, speaking to what you were saying, Valen, about the writing, I think, you know, I think about something that my sister said to me recently, which is, um, it is all your testimony, right? So the thing is, once you put your testimony out into the world, you lose the control of what people do with it, but your responsibility is to give yourself grace as you're like writing that testimony so that whatever someone does with it after, you're okay with it. You're able to handle that. And, you know, I think about that with, I'm writing fiction books, but everything you write, you pour yourself into it, <laughs> you know? Um, and even, even most recently, you know, I had a really bad breakup and the first thing I did in order to start to heal from that was to develop a synopsis for a book that talked about something that was not exactly the same, but very similar. <laughs> and mm -hmm. I sent that to my agent. She was like, I love this. This is great. Da -da -da. I'm like, yeah, somebody's going to be able to relate to it because, <laughs> you know, because it, it shows me that I'm not alone in whatever I'm dealing with. It shows me that, you know, I can bleed myself onto this paper, but also take care of myself while I'm doing it and that it will eventually help someone else. You know, it's the same thing with, as you were telling the story of your grandmother, I saw in the chat that um, Keila was relating to it. Like the, these are the things that I think um, as a Christian woman in particular, we're taught, one of the good things that we're taught <laughs> is um, a lot of times the stuff that happens to you that you are supposed to speak out, it's supposed to be to help other people, right? 
and it may not feel like it at that time, but something that is that I consider self-care as well is when something that I go through doesn't feel like it's in vain. It feels like it helps someone else or it helped me even. Um, and so I think that's, that's stuff to kind of keep in mind when you're thinking about the activism because it's, it's not just the advocacy that we think of in terms of social justice. It's also like personal one-to-one -one activism as well. Yeah, I think, I think Darby, Miranda, you guys brought it up in the sense of what I was going to say is activism and social justice is, is exhausting and you need to continuously be taking care of yourself so you can go out and do that work. Um, you know, and I definitely myself over last summer, when I get stressed, I tend to take on more than I can handle. And then I get upset at myself for not being able to make time for myself. It's like a vicious cycle. And I found myself taking on things, you know, as we were witnessing what was going on across, you know, the US dealing with the pandemic. And I was like, at one point, I was just like, oh my God, I, I can't be a coach. I can't coach these people if I can't even coach myself. So that was the realization there. But what I wanted to actually say was it also has forced me to look at things in my coaching, like accessibility. You know, I had a, a coach recently, I, it kind of sparked this thought in my head. He was like, you need to go outside and you need to ground yourself, go outside and find some grass, you know, walk out in your backyard. He lives in a really nice area in Long Beach. And I was like, okay, go tell that to the kids that live in like the Queensboro projects, like go outside with no shoes on and walk around and ground yourself. Like, yeah. no, first of all, like not everybody has access to the same things. You know, so I try to make sure that when I'm coming up with, a, with programs, I'm keeping some free resources on my site. I want to make sure that fitness, there's no barrier to entry for fitness. Like there, there needs to not be a barrier to en entry because it's, it's intimidating enough, the fitness industry, you know, but just finding different ways to uh, offer more accessibility. And even to your point, Valen, in our last conversation, that also means, you know, making my content uh, consumable for people who may be deaf or can't are blind, you know? Um, so keeping that abilities aren't just physical, you know, um, and we may not always think of, you know, as a fitness instructor, I may think of like, oh, you know, accessibility being, you know, being able to execute the movement, but it's also being able to consume my content and be able to derive value from that. So, you know, not taking care of myself and seeing, you know, through because of everything that was going on and, and trying to keep up with activism and social justice also forced me to kind of look at, all right, well, what about the people I'm serving? Like what barriers or what issues are they going through in their life? You know? Um, so I think it kind of forces us to take a look on both ends of the coin, you know? I'll jump in next. Um, really, really great points. Um, and I just want to share two things that kind of stood out to me. So Darby, you were talking about um, you know, how writing is so important and feeling like your experiences aren't um, in vain. And so during my PhD experience, um, it felt very lonely and I was going through a lot, um, but I was having these instances where I would be sharing with other aspiring um, doctoral students about my experience. And I was learning like, oh, they're facing very similar struggles, right? And so um, the collective power of just technology and social media 
gave me the vision to start um, my doctoral community PhDology. And so being able to kind of share my stories and my experiences um, through like these, these short writings to me was therapeutic. And also it helped to bring about again, these collective experiences that made it feel like, hey, this wasn't just one person going through one thing. This is what our Black women scholars or our minority um, scholars are facing. And so the being able to be bold enough um, to share those experiences made me feel like um, that there was you know, strength in numbers. And so I really appreciated being able to have the writings inspire and encourage other people to share so that we could also come together to find some solutions that we could take back to our own um, academic institutions. And to me, I kind of saw this as also um, an act of resistance because I think when we think about um, the academic academy, you know, there's this value system of what we consider to be worthwhile, publishable knowledge. And being able to do it on my own terms on social media, a platform that everybody is using, really made me feel like, you know what, I don't care what your rules are for what you think is valuable knowledge. This is what's happening. And thousands of other people think that this is um, worthwhile information. And what I really liked about that too, Asia, you were talking about accessibility, is that when we go publish in these journals, you know, you got to go pay what, $100 to go get the article, right? And right here is my testimony um, on this free platform that you can use for your own empowerment. Um, and so I think that for me, I'm the type of person I just need to get, I need to vent, I need to get my testimony out there. And so being able to write and share on social media helps me to do that. Um, another sentiment that has been commonly expressed in our, in our stories is this idea that activism and social justice work is, is very hard work, right? Um, and it can easily lead to burnout. And so one thing that I've been thinking about lately is that I'm in the middle of contract negotiations. And I'm like, how can I use my negotiations for self-care? And so I reached out to a mentor and I was like, hey, what are some things that I, should, I can negotiate so that I can be, be productive and do my work? And she was like, you need a teaching assistant, you need a research assistant. Um, you know, make sure to take off time for this, include this, all of these things I had not thought about that are ultimately going to be able to set me up for success so that when I'm doing the work, when I'm doing the advocacy work and the activism work, you know, I'm not looking spent. And it's because I was able to negotiate better on the front end, the things that I need in order to do the work in a healthy way. And so I think that's one thing that we can think about as we're negotiating these contracts and these projects, how can we build in some self-care support um, within these documents? So I'll move us into a, a different sort of terrain here. And maybe Danielle or Veronica, you can pick up on some of this. Because I think Miranda, Darby, Shay, Asia touched on these points, but didn't actually talk about them in the context of the last 14 months. 
And so when you think about the, the last 14 months, when we think about COVID, uh, the murder of George Floyd, the murder of Breonna Taylor, the constant murders of Black women that oftentimes go dismissed and unknown and untalked about and unprotested. Um, when we think about just the level to which we experience shifts in our workplaces where all of a sudden everyone was like, oh, we need to be anti-racist. I forgot about this thing. Let me sort of put in new programming here and do this new thing and do this new thing. And then also tax each and every one of you to actually do the work, right? Um, or the experiences of, of microaggressions, and those happen daily, right? Um, I had this conversation last year in June about environmental microaggressions. So here in Lafayette, uh, in downtown Lafayette, there's a statue of General Mouton, who's a Confederate uh, soldier, right? And so you can walk past the, the statue as often as you want, and it is an environmental microaggression, right? Like you don't have to actually think about what he stood for and what it was about, but every time you pass it, you were experiencing this microaggression. And so there's, um, there are a lot of things, right? So I'm curious, one, in terms of how did you find your self-care routines, practices, helping you maintain and sustain over the last 14 months, but then also considering that as a collective, as Black women, we are tribes often, often, regularly, probably once we hang up here, somebody's going to do something, right? Like these, these <laughs> moments of feeling tried come up often. And so I'm curious as to how you find yourself using soul care, um, noticing the ways in which your practices helped you, or you had to shift and change some of them. I will say one thing that I found myself needing at some point in time was this punching bag behind me. Um, <laughs> there were, there was a moment when I had to call my family for us to be on FaceTime and just scream together, like literally scream, um, because it felt weighted, right? There were moments when I would call Danielle and we'd just be on the phone and cry because there were things that, that happened, right? Like things that just needed a, needed the cathartic release with someone else there in those moments. Um, and so I'm curious as to, for the six of you, how'd that come up? Veronica, I, I see you playing it. I have a perspective that Valen, you're very aware of, and Darby, I'm sure coming from New Orleans that you're aware. I went through the past 16 months in the South, okay? I went through the past 16 months in a community of people who thought that COVID was a hoax where Trumpism and Confederacy was a, a mask to hide bigotry um, and a place where people really are so segregated by choice and they have been for so long and all of this stuff being televised and the shootings. And then they were just like, I didn't realize this was going on. And you're just sitting up here like, what rock you hiding under? Um, and so it got to a point that all of it was exhausting. The election cycle, um, the televised murder porn, um, it just got tiring. And it was just times where you felt alienated and isolated in your own community. Um, and you just, you wanted to stop having to be that person that your, your white friends are like, well, what am I supposed to be doing? And you're like, Google it, 
<laughs> Google it. The burden of educating you does not rest on me. Please Google it. Um, you know, if you can Google how to make a quiche, you can Google what box braids are. If you can Google how to make bread, you can Google everything, anything you need to know. Um, and so just learning here where there's such a culture of keeping your mouth shut because it's not worth the trouble, learning that silence is not compliance. Um, and just because I choose not to educate you on it does not mean that I'm complicit in it. Um, and then understanding that just existing here sometimes is um, is rebellion and being a black person here in a professional world, um, walking into a meeting and having green hair and still being professional. To me, that's my, that's my rebellion. That's me forcing you to accept me. Um, that's me whenever I'm saying, you know, black lives matter down here, that's like a curse word. So saying black lives matter and my black life matters. And then looking at you, like what you going to do that in itself is self-care for me because it's like a release. It's this feeling of release. Um, and in a, in a community of people who when often whenever we are protesting and we are speaking out, it's nobody hears because nobody cares. And taking those steps to say, I don't really care what your opinion is. I'm gonna say what I have to say anyway. And then seeing those shocked faces, I'm gonna be honest, that's like therapy for me. It's, it's therapeutic. Um, so six, the past 16 months has been, definitely a stripping down of influences around me, um, a stripping down of all of these constructs that I've built within myself to almost protect myself from the constant aggressions and finally seeing things for what they are and having not an acceptance about it, but just like a sense of relief that you're not going crazy, that all these things that I've experienced throughout my entire life and you're made to feel as if, you know, you're being aggressive or you're being angry or you're being unrealistic in your expectations and stopping to say, no, I'm not crazy. No, I'm not angry. And no, my, my expectations are not unrealistic. Um, that in itself is healing for me. Mm -hmm. So can I say, as I hear you say that, um, I wish the rest of my shirt said, but sometimes I am angry, like angry's crossed out with all the other things, but I also need it to be known. Like sometimes I am angry and I deserve to be angry Absolutely. and you don't get the fucking right, excuse me, to tell me that I don't get to be angry, right? Like, um, my anger is healing. My anger actually has something to say, right? People aren't just angry for the mm -hmm. sake of being angry. Like people are angry because they have something to say. There is something there that I need to get out and make sure that is known for you. But also it's important to understand that the opposite side of the coin of anger is love. Like I'm not expressing this in the, in the vein of there not being love behind the reason why I'm angry, right? And when we think about um, the, the, overflow of emotion of being angry this overflow of feeling like i've got to bring about change for the rest of the world because this white supremacy thing is so goddamn heavy that is related to the fact that right behind that is love like i'm doing this because i need there to be something different out here that exists in a world that doesn't always love me um and, and we can't minimize our feelings 
I'm yeah. sorry not to cut you off, but we can't minimize our feelings to just anger and love because then that like boxes us onto this category of the angry black woman or that like fully encompassing black maternal figure. And to me, we are so multifaceted that it's disappointment it's joy, you know, and it's, it's expressing all of those emotions. And like you said, just, just, I'm angry. So I want to yell. Um, I'm sad. So I want to cry and allowing ourselves to do that because there is that image that we, we try to uphold that we're not supposed to be emotional creatures. You know, it's crying is a sign of weakness or, you know, being short tempered is a sign of lack of maturity and all these different things. It's being able to go up to your, you know, white counterpart and say, I'm really disappointed in you because of this, that in itself is also strength. And that in itself is also part of a healing process and being able to recognize every facet of that feeling and not minimize any of them. I think that's why spaces like this are so important, right? Because when we're in the world and we have to kind of deal with those microaggressions or the people who aren't hearing us or listening for whatever reason, right? Um, where are spaces collectively as black women to get together and, and cry, right? Like the fact that we can get on the phone and cry together, be angry together and know that we're holding each other up. Um, this, is, this is that, right? This is that self-care right here. Um, and it's, and I think when I think about the past 16 months, I've actually, I think that you said it really nicely, Veronica, I started just stripping down. Like, what do I not need in my life right now? I have so many other things to focus on. I have two kids running around. I need to make sure that they're okay. They're seeing these things on TV. How do I make sure they're okay? Um, even when I'm not okay. <laughs> um, and it's hard. It's hard to not have or feel like you don't have a space to just be yourself or to just let um, your hair down or to cry or to feel like you even have to kind of toe this line of, even the fact that you have to think about, can I be angry in this moment, right? Like, can I be angry right now? Is this appropriate? Like, is somebody gonna come back at me at the, for this? Um, and being scared of that, like, how often do we give ourselves spaces with each other to just be ourselves and to have the emotions without fear of repercussion, um, I think is really important as we're thinking about how do we care for ourselves, especially in the past, um, it's, this is, this, the past 16 months is just, has been very hard, right? Um, especially because we're isolated from each other. We can't actually all be sitting around a table together, you know, um, so how do we, how do we create these spaces for ourselves where we can just be? Yeah. I, I'm going to jump in real quick and say I had to like hit the bottom. Not, I, I don't want to call it rock bottom because I feel like it could have been so much worse. Um, but in the last 16 months, besides, you know, the obvious pandemic that we've all experienced, you know, I, I lost a few close friends to, to COVID, but also I had a six year relationship and, and was not ready for it, didn't see it coming. Um, so taking an isolating experience like a pandemic where I'm already overloading myself with things because I have to stay busy, I have to hustle hard, I have to keep going, you know, I'm in fitness, so I have to pivot and make sure now that everything is online. And then to have this devastating, you know, loss end of this relationship, I, it 
forced me to take that moment. Um, and as Veronica said, strip down those layers and really decide like, what am I going to hold on to? Like, what's really important? And like, what do I need to let die or let go to make myself a whole person again? Because I was feeling like a not, like, I wasn't even feeling like a person. I felt like a blob, like just like nothing. And it was time for me to rebuild my life. And I decided I was like, I'm, I'm setting the narrative now. Like now it's not going to be like, we've talked about all of these different roles that people expect black women to fill. And I was like, what role do I want to fill for myself? Like, what role do I want to fill for other people? Like, who do I want to be for myself and for the people I love? And let's start there. And, you know, the other stuff will come, but like just starting there and, and also realizing you don't have to have it all figured out when you want to start working on self-care. Sometimes it's, it's just fitting in the one thing that you can change that's going to move the needle 1%, you know? And if you can just do that every day for like a week, then maybe you can layer in something else. But this thinking of like, all right, I gotta fix, I, I gotta focus on self-care, I gotta fix it and it has to change now. Like no change ever happens overnight, ever. Um, so giving ourselves, and I know we've been talking about giving ourselves the grace and the opportunity to, to, to see like, okay, what do I need in my life? Like, what do, what do I need for Asia to help Asia grow? And just knowing like, you're gonna let go of some things during that process, but that creates room to pick up some really, some really useful, good tools, you know? I, yeah, I wanted to um, just say something of what you just said, Asia, that stuck out to me. Um, I feel like self-care has become a like a thing, right? And it's a thing now, right? And it's a have to have, right? And so I think the, the, I think social media has actually done a really bad job of like making self-care this big thing that we have to tackle. Um, And I think we've all said this early on. It's like, it doesn't have to be a big thing. It can be something really small. Um, And and honestly, the way that I've been thinking about it is like two questions that I ask myself is one, what do I do to show I care for other people? And it could, it's something, it's usually like I give them a gift, I give them a phone call, I, you know, I, I tell them, I give them some kind of positive affirmation. Like, why don't I do that for myself? Like buy myself a little gift, um, tell myself I love you today, you know? Like those are things that I do to show I care for other people. I have to do that for myself. And then the other question is like, when am I most at peace? Like if I've, sometimes it's hard for me to see, but if I surround myself with people who can tell me, you seem really peaceful right now. And it's all of a sudden I'm like clued into, this is the thing I need to keep doing. This is the thing I need. I think about some of my closest friends, um, uh, my friend Kate, who's on, I think she, I watch her baking and I'm like, she just seems really calm and at peace right now. This is her thing. Um, I see like Valen with her yoga and I was like, this is her thing. Like she's so calm and at peace when she's doing this and it might not be my thing. Right. So what is my thing? And like, I'm surrounding myself with people who can tell me this is your thing. Like do this. This is when you're most at peace. If I can't see it for myself. So in the interest of time, unless Miranda, Darby, or Shay, you have something you want to add to this. I was just going to quickly say to what Asia was talking about. Um, I think a big part of the last 14 months for me has been 
allowing myself to feel whatever feelings I'm feeling in that moment. <laughs> um, and that has been a journey for me, uh, a really hard journey because normally I am like, you numb it, you put whatever feelings you have in a box, you put that to the side until you can deal with it and you keep it moving because you've got work to do, right? But mm -hmm. the last 14 to 16 months have showed us that you can't do that. I, I would be broken right now if I tried to keep that up. Um, that like, it's when I'm sad, I just have to tell people like, I can't, I can't be there for you right now. I, I woke up this morning and it has hit me and I just have to feel it. If I'm happy, I need to lean into that. You know, one of the, the best things, you know, Zoom has been exhausting sometimes, but it's been a real resource to be able to laugh with my friends when I couldn't, you know, travel with them like I would normally be used to, um, or even just texting with family or something like that. Like just to really lean into and not avoid whatever feelings I'm, I'm having in that moment. Yeah. This has um, been a really, really wonderful conversation. I see I'm being asked for a part two of this. So this, this uh, today is actually the third Zoom conversation or a series that I've had during um, Mental Health Awareness Month. This is the last one for the month, but certainly there will be more conversations in June. So first I want to say thank you to Miranda, Darby, Danielle, Shay, Asia, Veronica for all of the the wonderful things you have shared with us today. I also want to take us out by asking you to talk about joy and what brings you joy, because certainly all of the things we have talked about today require us to sort of reflect on what brings us joy. Um, and in doing this work for me, it is an, an act of radical love. So I didn't define radical earlier, nor did I talk about my own. I did talk about my processes of radical self-care, but for me, this work is an act of radical love and recognizing that even in the midst of all of it feeling hard, weighted, um, feeling as if I'm, I'm spent and exhausted, I find myself needing to continue to do this work on the opposite side of that coin of anger because I love, right? Because I want to see something change and be different for the spaces in which I'm engaging, for the spaces that I'm interacting, for the people who are working and with me and other people out there in the world, right? Um, I, I sort of build on this notion from Asada Shakur around revolutionary love, when she talks about revolutionary love with the slash of the R slash E, right? That revolutionary love is both revolutionary and it's evolutionary. That's there and intended to change you. Um, similarly to the way in which Bell Hooks talks about love, right? And it being this radical force that's that's impacted and felt as a noun, adjective, and a verb. And so these are these are things that are important to me and the reason why I wanted to bring this conversation together today. So I wanna know for the six of you, what brings you joy? On a day-to-day -day basis, what is bringing you joy? I'll say that for me, um, you know, life is just really about relationships. So what brings me joy is spending time with those that I love, right? Those are my girls. That's my puppy, <laughs> family, um, my youth, right? Um, and in that, I'm actually engaged in some self-care practices, you know, in, in actually exploring those relationships. So, um, you know, for example, um, you know, just in thinking about being active and literally the act of like, you know, walking my puppy twice a day, being out and, you know, kind of just breathing in like air, getting out of my seat, right? Because, you know, everything is just like sedentary these days, but 
actually getting out, walking. Um, and I actually just bought a jump rope and a hula hoop. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but um, but me and one of my Spelman sisters, we actually just started an, a, a brand new IG account. It's called Black Girls Roll DC. And um, and basically what we do is like, we just like post up. We only got one post so far, so we literally just started it. But we like post up at different murals and different like pieces of street art in DC in our skates. And so, and my skates are so bomb. I got, they're like, they're purple. They got a little pom-pom on the front. They light up. That gives me joy. Like, I love that, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Um, and, you know, when I think about my, you know, just the self-care of, you know, you know, being active, being involved in, in maintaining my relationships and pouring into those relationships as they pour into me. Um, I, you know, I will say when I, when I look good, I feel good. So I actually do take time to like get my nails, my toes, my eyebrows, my hair done, things like that. But if I take, you know, if I think about those things outside of just the ways that I think Danielle mentioned, like self-care is like a thing these days in the ways it gets commodified, right? <laughs> if I take a look at other ways that I'm engaging in self-care in a way that brings me joy, you know, um, you know, I really just haven't really been taking taking myself too seriously. I'm forgiving myself more. I'm allowing myself to try new things. I'm remaining um, humble. And oh my God, let me show y'all. Um, you know, I'm a woman of faith, so I do stay prayed up, but I'm also really being grateful. So Darby, she got me this right here. <laughs> she got me this. Uh, y'all see this? Y'all, can y'all read it? Miranda's gratitude jar. Thanks, Darbs. <laughs> but literally, I literally write what I'm grateful for and put it on a little card, put it in here. And sometimes like literally like last week, I actually took the time and went through what I've written. And that was so fulfilling to be like, oh my God, I just feel so cool. Like I'm so appreciative, right? And I just love that exercise. So thank you for putting me on to this, Darby. And an example of how you can rely on the relationships that you have in your life to actually help you maintain and, you know, quarantine yourself. Oh, wait, and last thing I'm going to say. Also, the things that bring me joy is def definitely 90s R&B. I know we, we might end with that <laughs> in, in, the, in, the, in the music, right? So I appreciate that. Uh, I'm just going to be honest. Orgasms actually bring me joy. And then also a clean house brings me joy. <laughs> Thank you for your honesty, Miranda. <laughs> I really appreciate that. And it, just saying that makes it feel like we're at brunch right now. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Gotta, gotta be real. Okay. All right. <laughs> When you said that, you know, your youth brings you joy. I think I told you this once before. I spend 10 minutes in the morning with my jade roller and my moisturizer just rolling out my face because not only does it bring me joy, I'll be damned if I'm not out here moisturized while I'm trying to fight the fight, right? Like I need to make sure I'm moisturized at all times for the things that are going to happen. Um, anyway, Darby. <laughs> Well, many of the things that Miranda said, obviously, um, <laughs> I have my own gratitude jar that I make my, for myself because I didn't want to give that practice to people in my life that I loved and not take it on for myself. So that is um, one of the things. The other thing is, y'all, I love dancing. I cannot dance. I know that this is, I probably need to give someone my New Orleans card and my black card and all that stuff. But in the comfort of my home, I become um who's boom cat what's her name y'all know who i'm talking about the like doja cat what'd you say doja cat no 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 no. like the choreographer who she uses boom oh, cat oh, abdul lorianne thank you thank oh. you for listening in the chat <laughs> no i'm lorianne in my apartment i put on my 90s music i put on whatever and just dance my little heart away with a glass of wine in my hand yes. um 
And so that is definitely something that brings me joy, communing with other women and just laughing. Um, I realized, you know, I celebrated my birthday last weekend. It was the first time I had really been out and about in a year and a half. And I was exhausted after, but I was so happy just because it was, we didn't do anything too crazy. We were just, me and my friends were out. <laughs> like we were at a park, we were on a boat and we were just laughing the whole time. I lost my voice. I was laughing so much. And that, you know, it was a reminder of how important that is to me um, in my like self-care journey. So those are the ones I would, I would lift up. Yeah, anytime like I have a Beyonce song come on, like there's no stopping me from just like twerking <laughs> by myself. Like it just exactly. <laughs> and recently, Lizzo's Soulmate. Well, it's like it, song's been out for a while, but Soulmate. Like I find myself just standing in my bathroom mirror naked, just dancing the Soulmate, yes. singing to the top yeah. of my lungs. Like it's so good. I have a um a playlist of like you know the female rappers, right? Lizzo's definitely on there. You've got your Meg, you got your Nikki, your Cardi. And sometimes you need that ratchet, like, <laughs> like yeah, I look good. <laughs> both hands, okay, absolutely. Yes, balance. <laughs> <laughs> Danielle, Shay, Asia, Veronica, what brings you joy? Daily. Uh, honestly, like sometimes just driving in the car by myself. <laughs> with nobody in there, <laughs> just like alone in the car. Um, and just like, you have like the mental space to kind of unpack everything that's going on. And I do occasionally find myself not even realizing that I've reached my destination, which is probably kind of dangerous. But um, I think that's one thing. Um, I have been um, doing more of the like personal writing, um, valid shared a prompt with me not too long ago, um, which like you had to fill in the home is. And I would, if it's okay, I'm gonna read mine, but it like helps group me every day. And I think this like things like this just bring me joy. So home is crossing the Brooklyn Bridge, left turn up a winding hill, two smiling faces, fidgety little bodies, an urgent uppy mama, the house with the seasonal flag, turn off the main road into a parking lot, bright red against a muted tan brick a warm embrace scented with old spice, smacked with sticky air and a whiff of salt. Right turn off Marcus Garvey, bean pies on the corner. Arms tightly wound around my neck, legs wrapped around my belly, hearts beating in sync. Love it. Beautiful, Danielle. <laughs> yes. Great. I can't wait to see the two of them. I'm... <laughs> so for those of you who don't oh, know, big. Uh, Danielle lives in DC, as does Miranda. Um, but now that you know we can actually go and see each other again in about mm -hmm. three weeks, I'm going up to see Danielle and my nieces. And I call them my nieces because we're so close. But I cannot wait for just three days of being with the two of them. Yeah. Well, you'll have fun. I'm going to hand them off to you. <laughs> Shay, what brings you joy on a daily basis? gives me joy um danielle kind of like you like I, I love a good you know self-conversation in the car you know um on what's it called insecure when Issa's like in the mirror like rapping to herself car <laughs> conversation man me and myself we we be getting into it um <laughs> i think just those moments when i can zone out and so if i can make it home and watch judge mathis or Judge Judy, baby, I have had a great day. 
And um, it's a part of my routine. And my husband's like, why do you like, why do you like these shows so much? Because it's just an opportunity for me just to just zone out, get into the case, get invested in something else that I don't really have to do anything. Um, and of course, relationships, Miranda, that's such a great word. Um, I'm home, like I'm back in my hometown. So being able to hang out with my mom, my nephew, um, kicking it with my husband, my son, like these things bring me joy. And, and of course, um, adventure, I'm a big traveler. So anytime, you know, I can go and explore something new, you know, um, in my home state, or uh, if I can get on the plane, I'm happy. So uh, Shay, that's funny you say that because I'm getting this private message that says you better share about the fact that you watch People's Court. I watch People's Court literally <laughs> every single day. I make it my business during lunch at 12 o'clock to post up with Marilyn Million and just sit there and watch because it is literally my jam. I think the other day I sent Megan uh, a picture because she threw up the U because she graduated from Miami. And I was like, oh, this is why I love this show so much. Marilyn gets me. Yeah. And yeah. like, it's <laughs> oh, awesome. Love it. That's great. Asia, Veronica. My, what brings me joy, Val and Matt, y'all know this, I love to feed people. To me, that is just such a basic activity of like just fellowship and togetherness that I just love the process of having people in my home, cooking for them, eating with them, breaking bread, conversations that are had over food. Because if you think about it, like the people that you invite into your home and you feed them, like that's just like a level of like love and friendship and just like relationship that is just, it's peace for me. That is the, the act of cooking is cathartic. And the act of like bringing nourishment to someone is my love language. Um, so yes, I'm, I'm the food house. If you ever want to eat, come over here, baby. I got ribs, rice and gravy at all. Um, and then beyond that, I'm, I'm definitely a traveler. I love to travel. Um, the same as what Shay was saying. I don't get to do it as much as I'd like to because toddlers can kind of like, you know, just keep you in the house some. But to me, I love the planning of where I'm going. I like to be very mindful of where I'm going, even if it's just an hour down the road or you know, out of the country. I love the act of knowing about where I'm going. That's exciting. And being able to understand if there's a culture to a place that I'm visiting or a history, learning about that. And the journey is exciting. And just those feelings of anticipation, that to me is joyful. Asia? So a couple of things, I think those are all really good. Like you guys all painted such a picture of what joy means to you. And I think the couple of things that come to mind is Bill Withers' Lovely Day. I will never, that's a song I will never change. Like if I'm about to start class, class might be a little late or we'll warm up through it because that song just for whatever reason brings me so much joy. Um, like you, Darby, uh, my puppy. Oh, I'm sorry. It was a Miranda. It was Miranda that had the puppy. Yes. Sorry. Um, <laughs> but one of the one of the things I did during the pandemic was I adopted a puppy, and 
she having someone that's just so happy to like be in your presence, even when you maybe don't feel like being in your own presence, um, reminds you that you're always, you're always lovable, no matter what, like, Mm -hmm. and so she brings me joy. And then being able to have had this time and I don't think it was in vain. I don't think, you know, the, the emphasis of like during the pandemic, starting your business or, do, 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 or doing this and doing that. I think it also for a lot of us shines a light on the relationships that we have that maybe don't get as much nurturing. So it brings me joy to start to nurture those relationships, those relationships with my parents, you know, and making sure that, you know, I'm cutting out time to spend with them, like meaningful time that I clean up things on my to-do list so that when I'm with them, I'm not thinking of the things that I have to do. Um, I got to spend the weekend with my best friend who's like my sister and see my nieces, you know? And to me, like making pizza with them yesterday and being like the cool auntie was so joyful. And she texted me, you know, a little bit before this call and she's like, that's the happiest I've been in over a year. And I was like, yeah, I felt really happy too, you know, and, and being able to like voice that to people, like you make me happy being with you make, makes me happy. We don't say that enough to each other. And I think that we, we should. So those are just a couple of things that, that bring me joy. Yeah. Oh, this has been such a soul filling, enriching conversation. I don't want it to end, but it does have to end because it is almost uh, 2.30 East Coast time, 1.30 here in, in uh, Louisiana. And so I want to thank the six of you for being here, for adding to my Sunday, for adding to the Sundays of the people who attended, uh, for sharing so much of your wealth and knowledge. Um, please, 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 if you are here, um, choose to follow these fabulous women. Uh, they're mm-hmm. all on Instagram. Drop your, your handles into the chat. Um, and now I'm also realizing that I introduced them in the very beginning and didn't introduce myself. For those of you who are here and don't know me, my name is Valen Jordan. I am a faculty developer at San Jose State University, and I'm also the founder of an organization called Yoga for Social Justice. And Yoga for Social Justice is committed to having these types of conversations and thinking about the ways mind, body, spirit practices, um, yoga, philosophy, helps us to think about social justice, activism, and advocacy. And so this conversation was the third of a series of conversations that happened this month focused in on uh, mental health awareness. And so it has been a wonderful conversation. I am so glad to have been here with all of you. Please, please, please continue to stay in touch. This conversation has been recorded and will be available on my podcast called 824, the Spirituality and Social Justice Podcast. Um, And... If you are interested in anything else that ever occurs with anyone who is here, again, feel free to reach out to us and stay in touch. Um, I thank you all. Please uh, have a wonderful rest of your Sunday. Thank you for choosing to listen to this episode of 824. And as always, if you have any questions, comments, concerns, you just wanna chat, please feel free to send me a DM on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook at Yoga for Social Justice. Yoga number four, Social Justice. You can always send me an email too at yogaforsocialjustice at gmail.com. Be well.